to the south Down to the delta To the river's mouth Well I Had a dream About some wetlands I've explored And some amphibians I've seen the Mississippi River is the most important resource in the United States of America. While providing fresh water to millions of Americans, its industries contribute 10% to our GDP, which means gross domestic product, and its floodplains and wetlands sustain millions of species. This year on May the River Be With You, we will create dialogue and discuss solutions to the challenges of the river flaces daily. We will explain how navigational infrastructure and man-made climate change has induced and intensified flooding trends. We will also discuss policy changes that will affect quality of water life while bringing to the forefront how microplastics are invading our precious fresh water. Go to www.onemississippi.org to check out how you can become a river citizen and start your stewardship with the iconic Mississippi River. Hello and welcome to May the River Be With You. Today we'll be talking about flooding in the Mississippi River Valley and all the aspects that contribute. My guest today will be John Rusky. He is the creative mind behind Quapaw Canoe Company and he's also the visionary for the company. He's been in the canoe business for 23 years and he's seen the river do many things. So today we'll be talking about what he's seen in his lifetime and what's changing and what's the same and how it contributes to everything up and down the river. So how you doing today, John, my quarantine brother? <laughs> right on, right on. I've, I've been kind of enjoying the uh, downtime and letting my hair down, doing a little more uh, painting, sketching, getting out there and... Uh, Spending some time on the other side of the levee, uh, some more quieter moments than uh, we usually have uh, this time of year. We're usually uh, so busy, we don't have time for things that are uh, important to us personally. So uh, I've, I've actually, in that aspect, there's many ways I have not been, jo- been enjoying quarantine, but in that aspect, uh, it's been rather nice, I have to say. How about you? Oh, it's been wonderful. Uh, it's given me the time to sit back and really look at yourself in the mirror and realize uh, who you are and uh, what's important. And it's given me the opportunity to really spend a lot of time uh, researching the river. And it's a coincidence that lately we're seeing a drop in the river after seeing the river high for about seven months. What have you seen in the last 23 years at Quapaw Canoe Company in flooding? Uh, what's the difference you've seen from the time you started the company to now? Well, the the biggest flooding effect that uh, I've experienced in, in the 23 years of the company, and, and that goes all the way back to the 40 years that I, I first dipped my toes in the mighty mist up in the state of Minnesota, and that is the uh, uh, Great Flood of 2011, which was the highest water uh, ever since 1927 in Helena, where where we keep a, a look on the gauge for our trips in this part of the river. 
And in some places, like in Natchez and, uh, and the Red River Landing down uh, near Angola Prison in uh, Louisiana, recorded their highest ever, including 1927 uh, flood levels, um, because a river kind of gets squeezed down there. And there are other effects going on, too. Yeah, in our short Quapaw period here uh, in the uh, 2000s, in the millennium, We've already seen the highest water since 1927, which uh, was a remarkable experience. Uh, kind of created the, the watershed for everything to follow and, uh, and, a, and a comparison to everything before it. Because I thought in 2008 we had a high water, and then in 2003 we had a high water. My sister Abby was here. We went out to Quapaw. And we couldn't get there because the water was all the way up to the levee. You know how it gets sometimes. And uh, there's the water waiting for you right there on the other side of the levee. So we put in there in a two-person grumman and paddled out. And um, there were deer running around the levee and um, and running through the break in the levee at that same old place that, that uh, busted for good in 2011 just beyond Quapaw Landing. Squirrels were stuck in trees, and uh, she was visiting in April of that year, and snakes were everywhere. And after about three hours of paddling, she's from, uh, she lives in in Olympia now, and uh, she's no stranger to the big waters. But after about three hours of paddling and constantly moving water, hitting us sideways through the woods, she started getting a little freaked out, uh, you know, like in a kind of a claustrophobic kind of way and started losing her sense of perspective. And we had to go find some land somewhere for her to kind of just chill out. Made me feel some sympathy for uh, the, the people who went through the 1927 flood and had to live for days, if not months, with water pouring around them in their rescue, you know, places to be rescued, tops of houses or hanging off trees or on railroad trestles or wherever they were. Well, yeah, the uh, the 1927 flood is what triggered the Army Corps with, to start with all the man-made infrastructure. How do you think that has attributed to what we're seeing now with the lack of silt making it to the Gulf, with the, the continuous changing of the navigational channel of the river? After 1927, the uh, Mississippi River Commission came back and rebuilt all the levees along the lower Mississippi River, and it was one of the greatest uh, works of engineering ever in the history of the world. I mean, it doesn't look like it from the distance because it's so long, and it's like the the pyramids in in Egypt, you know, the, the, the scale of the project and and the man hours it took to build that that levee. But they learned a lesson in 27. If you squeeze a river, it's going to rise high. And so instead of building those levees right on the river's channel, they moved them back, and and, uh, that's what we see today. It took them about 10 years to finish that project. What we see today on the Lower Miss is an expanded floodplain from what it was uh, 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 previous to 27, where when the river comes up, in theory, it's supposed to have enough room to expand uh, for that turbulent, destructive power of uh, fast-flowing, sediment-rich water 
to spread out, it, uh, it, when you allow it to do that, it slows down, it loses that powerful energy, and um, at the same time, it replenishes forests and, and rejuvenates wetlands and, and, uh, and oxbow lakes. Something new is happening uh, in the past several decades, even with that um, partially expanded floodplain. And I, I should back up a minute. Previous to America's engineering on the river, if, if you will, which started down New Orleans building little levees around the city of New Orleans, used to be protected by a three-foot levee. But previous to that, the Mississippi floodplain was 100 miles wide and 1,000 miles long from, you know, depending on where you start measuring. Uh, it, of course, goes wherever the river goes. There's a floodplain, but it's a giant floodplain. Once you get below Cape Girardeau, Missouri, it opens up big time. And if you look at Google Maps, you can see where the, uh, the flooding of the, of the uh, melting of the last ice age carved out a fairly consistently 70 to 100 mile wide floodplain all the way from Cairo, Illinois, the mouth of the Ohio River, all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. And of course, once it gets into Louisiana, it goes wild, wide open. What we've found in the past couple of decades is that even in the enlarged floodplain, we're talking five to 10 miles wide. In some places, it's narrower. Some places, it's only a mile wide. And that Natchez, for instance, because you got the bluff on one side. And on the other side is Vidalia, Louisiana, the home of Jerry Lee Lewis. And um, they have no room to let that river go anywhere because Vidalia is right there and the bluff's on the other side. And that's the reason that it keeps getting squeezed so high right there. But further upstream, we don't see those radical uh, changes, but still we are experiencing regularly higher and higher waters every year. We haven't had another big 2011 yet. But every year, we are seeing water staying higher for longer periods of time than statistically it used to uh, in the decades previous. So tell me this. Do you think that we're having these really high, f quick floods? Is it because of the closing of the wetlands and floodplains? Definitely. Uh, uh, I mean, in a short answer, yes. If you removed one lung you would lose half of your capacity to transfer oxygen into the bloodstream. And if you cut off 85% of your lungs, then you would only have 15% ability to rejuvenate your body with oxygen. And guess what? 85% is a percentage of wetlands that we've lost in the 200 years of our country. Well, let's back up a little bit. What was the reasoning when the Corps decided to stop damming the river past St. Louis? That's a good question. Uh, uh, paddlers coming down the river like, wait, what, why they they get to uh, Alton, Illinois, Lock and Dam number 27, uh, Melvin Price Lock and Dam, and, and all of a sudden the river changes big time. It's a wild roller coaster of a river flowing downstream from there, uh, past them at the mouth of the, of the big muddy Missouri. And the reason is the floodplain is too big. You can't contain the river uh, with a uh, justifiably uh, uh, reasonable dam project. 
And above St. Louis, the valley is narrower and, and rockier, and there are bluffs that come closer. And so dams are uh, possible to build. And in fact, they did that. They, the engineers created a kind of a staircase of uh, locks and dams above St. Louis, which enabled uh, commercial traffic. And this goes all the way back to when they started doing this, all the way back to the end of the steamboat days when it was becoming uh, coal-fired uh, towboats and then diesel-fired towboat. The Upper Miss um, had places, uh, Keokuk, Illinois is one of those, and the, and the Quad Cities, uh, Davenport is another, where there were falls right in the Mississippi. And they could only get through in high water times. The engineers built a staircase system of locks and dams all the way up to Minneapolis uh, to enable those uh, towboats to um, the depth of water they needed to uh, get on upstream. And down below, now there are two things going on uh, below St. Louis. And one of them is the width of the valley that I already talked about. It's just too big to justify. Uh, but the other thing is there's a uh, increased volume of water big time from the Illinois and then the uh, uh, Missouri. And it uh, increases the depth of the river and the capacity of the, uh, of the river to support those bigger vessels. So they, it turns out they didn't really need locks and dams below St. Louis and even less below the mouth of the Ohio River where it comes in at Cairo and, and delivers twice the amount of water. You thought you had a lot of water when you pass through St. Louis, and then you discover that Ohio is carrying twice as much as what you're on below St. Louis, you know, so all the way to the Gulf, 954 miles of the most ideal river conditions perhaps in the world. Birds of Quarantine. I sit on my patio in the courtyard sipping on ginger mushroom tea, anticipating the sunrise to peek over the concrete wall before me. I live downtown and my porch faces the back of a feed and seed store, so my sunrise is delayed by a few minutes. The building is old but solid, with various cracks, crevices, and abandoned infrastructure existing on its walls. During this health crisis, I sat here and watched the birds turn the small downtown courtyard into a quarantine sanctuary. A blackbird has claimed the old laundry exhaust pipe. The mother sits on eggs inside, the male continuously hunting and sinking along the power line. Another pair nests up in the old wooden window frames that have been compromised by weathering over the years. They use sticks and discarded plastic bags to construct a water-resistant nest. My neighbor has birds feeders, so various species visit us throughout the day. Nighthawks are zooming in the sky while pigeons fly in formation doing their daily configurations around town. A mockingbird toots its horn. The sun is just showing above the building and the birds are everywhere. I see a silhouette of a hummingbird visiting the trumpet flowers, checking in on their bloom. Small sparrows and finches singing, eating out of bird feeders while others spill seeds to the ground. Many plumb their wings in the dusty gravel beds while swallowing small pebbles that help them digest the seed. All this is happening within 15 minutes. I take my pre-workout walk towards the Sunflower River as a great blue heron flies overhead to the riverbank. The sky is filled with Mississippi kites showing up from Mexico, Central America, and South America. 
They make this journey to mate and feed on the favorite foods of cicadas and delta dragonflies. By the river, a family of cardinals whistle amongst each other in the cottonwood tree, while killdeer and sandpipers forage in the mudflats. A family of black-bellied whistling ducks take refuge along the Sunflower River in a small inlet behind our shop, while green heron feeds along the down hackberry tree along the muddy banks. I take a seat on the deck underneath the large sycamore tree. An oriole lands on the branch above me. I marvel at the striking colors that only nature creates. It goes from seed pod to pod, jamming its beak into each one, setting the seedlings afloat in the wind. I love it when I'm able to witness an event in nature that connects all dots. My quarantine Quapaw brothers and I have been spending our time reconnecting and bonding by gardening and finishing a project that was halted by the Sunflower River flood of 2016. The Dragonfly Dawn canoe has been woken. The energy is amazing and it comes from the sacred construction of a canoe. It has given us the strength and intestinal fortitude to continue on through this time of crisis. It makes you look at yourself and realize what's important in life. This morning I was aware of the importance of birds spreading seed and controlling our important sacred food chain. With the health and social injustice crisis the world is facing, the Creator is trying to get our attention. The message is that we all living creatures are important to the health of the world and we are put here to sustain and protect for future generations. We have the intelligent minds and science to pursue this, so let's not be afraid to ask the serious questions, create dialogue, and not be afraid to be the country we say we are. Mark River. Well, for listeners out there who don't understand the um, the, the levee system, this was all constructed for navigational purposes. So if you think about it, the foresight when it came to the levees and the revetments and the wedges and all the infrastructure on the river, do you think they knew what the outcome was going to be or was it going to be so slow that it wouldn't affect us? Well, yeah, they're engineers. They, uh, they think they're the hands of God. Uh, uh, and I can say that uh, partially uh, of, of poking. My father was an uh, engineer. And I'm an artist. I think I I I, I try and channel the uh, the the hand of God in in my painting and uh, and writing. Those engineers they they thought they were uh, well, their God. A lot of them is science, but they thought that um, they had come up with the solution for the future of the Mississippi River, and they were so certain about it, in fact, that they built an entire scale model. And it covers dozens, if not hundreds, of acres of um, land down near Jackson. It's called um, the Wetlands Experiment Station, WES. And it was built by German prisoners of war during World War II. The U.S. Army discovered they had a bunch of some super sharp German engineers who uh, were capable of building an exact replica of the Mississippi River. And so they were able, in scale, to test their theories. If you build a wing dam here or a dike here or a series of rock walls here or a chevron there, they felt like they had a pretty good idea what was going to happen uh, downstream and, and upstream. And hydrology is, a, is an incredibly complicated uh, subject. 
uh, hydraulics, I guess they call it. And the only way to uh, verify the uh, formulas or any plan was to test it and scale. They did that for years in this model. And when they started building all of the rock uh, infrastructure, uh, unrolling those giant uh, carpets of revetment along the banks of the river that we now see today. And uh, at one time, they, they poured uh, asphalt, just like they were paving 2nd Street in downtown Clarksdale. They would uh, they'd pour out a bunch of asphalt and, and roll over it with uh, asphalt machines and pound it into the bank. And uh, fortunately, they didn't uh, keep doing that. But you can see evidence of that at Montezuma Landing, uh, even today. And it's failed uh, in that location. The uh, plan was to provide navigation and flood control, uh, both at the same time, for perpetuity. And they assumed that, that we could count on doing it for the future of our history on this earth. It's all based on rainfall up in the catchment basin, which is where a drop of rain falls. And that, of course, includes anything in between Montana, New York State, and uh, everything downstream of there. And um, they had calculated pretty precisely uh, what the, the lower Mississippi was capable of handling in what they called Project Flood. And, and that is what happens when the highest possible waters that we could ever see come down the Mississippi River. And, and so they built the plumbing that we see today is designed to handle what they theorized was the highest possible flood event in the Mississippi Valley. And that comes out to like 2.5 million cubic feet per second of water at New Orleans, flowing through New Orleans. And you can see a flow chart if you go on the Army Corps uh, website and look, you'll see a flow chart that describes that exactly. With the result of all this revetment and infrastructure, it has uh, caused land loss in Louisiana, which has contributed to some very violent storms coming inland. Do you think that the engineers knew that this would happen in New Orleans? They felt like they were uh, creating a utopia in in uh, the South uh, and uh, and a perfect system for delivering uh, grain to the world and and uh, importing uh, oil and and chemicals that we can't get here. In this uh, 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 incredible uh, commercial crossroads, which is Louisiana, no one thought about what the effect would be on the wetlands, what the effect would be of creating a navigation channel 45 feet deep, which is what it is at New Orleans. They need a 45-foot draft to uh, handle those uh, big freighters that come up. To do that, they continue the system they use up here, which is um, concentrating the water with a series of uh, rock dikes uh, or wing dams, they, they uh, sometimes call them, and other big-time infrastructure to focus the water and uh, make the river dig deeper on its own so you don't have to dredge it. And uh, no one realized that in doing that, that we were in effect, uh, creating a mud hose from the center of America. You might as well have been pressure washing Iowa and Nebraska and all those states that are losing their topsoil. You might as well have been putting a, a vacuum cleaner on those states 
and turning the, the, the hose out over the Gulf of Mexico and just blowing it all t- to waste in the, in the depths of the Gulf of Mexico. Because that's what we did. We opened up the river so effectively that we gave no time for that sediment to slow down and fall out like it has been doing for millennia upon millennia and creating the uh, biologically critical habitat that is found in the marshes of Louisiana. And now we're losing uh, something like a football field every so many seconds, 60 seconds or something. I know that Louisiana's lost an amount of wetlands equal to the size of the state of Delaware. And that is directly the result of uh, not allowing that sediment coming down the river to slow down and drop out and recreate uh, those uh, critical wetlands. Well, for our listeners uh, who don't quite understand how this affects the flooding, what happens is we're losing land in Louisiana, and land dissipates storms like hurricanes and high winds and, and things like that. So if we're continuously losing land, it's getting closer and closer to our major cities, and this is what's causing these really strong storms that pop up out of nowhere. Now, how do you think, John, we're going to deal with climate change? With all of the problems that we have with our waterway, how is climate change going to mix it up? Well, it's the ultimate challenge because we're going to see something greater than Project Flood. And everything that um, we've prepared for um, is going to be greater uh, um, tested and and the water's going to come up higher and it's going to be longer. All indications are that um, for the next uh, 100 years, we're going to see continuously uh, heavier rainfalls and longer uh, uh, rainy seasons in this part of America, and especially up the Ohio River Valley, uh, which is where we get most of our water and contributes to the uh, our biggest floods. We are going to be severely tested, uh, not only by long, hot summer days, by water rising in places that it's never been before, and staying there longer, causing um, distress to our uh, internal systems, um, such as stormwater sewer systems, commercial navigation, and uh, homeowners' uh, safety, and especially those, of course, who have built in in or near low-lying places in the Big Valley. Howdy, howdy, everybody. This is John Rusky, and we're going on River Time. So this comes out of I Am Coyote, Readings for the Wild. The Gift of the Wild. We all have someone in our lives who opened up the doors to the wilderness for us. All of us. How about you? Think on it a minute and thank them for that gift. My parents were outdoor lovers and adventurers, especially my father, but my mother also. They wouldn't like to think so, but they led me somehow to the raft and this river. I'm amazed now when I remember the adventures we had and the great risks they took with us and with their lives. And yet those same risks open up our eyes to a parallel reality that exists just outside the safety of our comfortable homes, just over the riverbank off the highway, 
back in the woods, beyond the last line of fences and private property signs. My parents would pack my family of 10 into our green van and make crazy camping vacations deep into the Baja of California or up the Canadian Rockies where my father's family lived into Alaska. My mother is Colorado-born, five generations deep. I would have to say that more than anyone, my father opened up my eyes to the beauty and thrill of the great outdoors something that was repeatedly carried on through my older brothers, who continued to backpack and cross-country ski and involve me in the same throughout my childhood. There was something slightly out of control about these family adventures, but that is one of the universal aspects of the wilderness, isn't it? That is being awestruck and governed by something larger than yourself. Something chaotic, which is sometimes frightening, sometimes enlightening. And yet, out of the chaos emerges profound beauty and renewal. Anyone who has spent any time on the Mississippi River could easily share these same feelings, at turns frightened and enlightened. If you don't let the fright get the best of you, don't let it transform into paranoia, that helpless feeling that will confine you to the couch, then the shock of fright opens up a pathway to learning. Fear leads to amazement. Amazement becomes wonder, and wonder opens up your imagination to the endless possibilities of the universe, which seem to be expressed and re-expressed in infinite varieties of forms here on the restless face of the mightiest of all rivers. My older brothers alternately terrorized and then tantalized me into a soulful love of the outdoors. One of my strongest early memories is of my eldest brother, Frank, holding me by my arms over the lip of the Grand Canyon and grinning devilishly. I knew he wouldn't let me go. At the same time, I was unable to hold back the terror of the unknown. I think I was six or seven. Later, he prodded me down the Bright Angel Trail for a frigid swim in the freezing waters of the Colorado River and then actually carried me back out on his shoulders by the light of the full moon. Westerners, in general, have a different ethic about the outdoors and Southerners. I grew up at the edge of Arapahoe National Forest in the front range of Colorado, which rises from the Great Plains like a tsunami wave, and this was a playground for my friends and family. Everywhere we traveled throughout the Rockies and desert southwest, we hiked and camped and swam. On road trips, when it was time to camp, we simply turned off the highway and into the nearest national forest and picked out a place. I grew up with the feeling that the outdoors belong to everyone, not only those who can afford a hunting camp over the levee. It was much later when I grew into the difficult teenage years that I rediscovered my love of water and became more involved in its meaning and importance, not only to myself, but all Americans, and really to the benefit of all people on the face of this planet. Water connects us all, for better or worse. The wetlands are disappearing at an alarming rate, while floods are becoming more frequent and catastrophic and seem to be alternating with severe droughts. So when my best friend Sean and I scuttled our ambitions for higher education and instead built a giant wooden raft and floated down the Mississippi River out of the Minnesota woods in 1982, much to the dismay of our college counselors, it was the start of a journey that resonates loudly today. It really saved me. I really believe it saved me. It almost killed me also. Five months later, when we lost all of our earthly possessions and became shipwrecked on a muddy island in northern Mississippi, I became infected for life. I became infected with the muddy river. 
I was struck by a ray of light that still guides me to this very day and illuminates the way down the difficult, dusty road of business and our ever-rewarding life as a river rat in a company of river rats. This program is brought to you by One Mississippi. Can the river count on you? Quapaw Canoe Company, engage in all walks of life to the Mississippi River. Book your trip today by going on www.island63.com and start planning your next adventure. This show is hosted by Mark River, produced by John Rusky, Mark River, and audio engineered by Coop Cooper and directed by Coop Cooper. Music by John Rusky and Rivertime segment by John Rusky.